The Senate approves a stopgap funding measure to keep the government open for one week, avoiding a shutdown until a larger deal can be reached. It's Friday, December 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Twitter suspends the accounts of a number of journalists saying they violated the site's rules. Some of those journalists did reporting critical of Twitter owner Elon Musk. Also, Democrats want to make Georgia one of the first contests on the presidential primary calendar. The fact that we are being prioritized speaks volumes for both Democrats and Republicans. But Georgia's Republican Secretary of State isn't on board. And this hour behind the scenes of a new artificial intelligence program that can write college essays, poems, and even sitcoms. In sports, the Bruins lose in a shootout. Rain and wind today around 40. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Russia has launched a fresh barrage of missile strikes against Ukrainian targets this morning. These took out power in cities across Ukraine. NPR's Tim Mack reports from Kyiv. It's making conditions even more difficult as cold, wintry weather continues. Ukrainian officials announced that Russia launched at least 70 strikes targeting some 10 Ukrainian regions. The mayor of Kyiv, Vitaly Klitschko, said that at least three strikes had occurred in the capital city. And the southern city of Kriviri was struck at least 12 times, according to the local administration. Power and water supplies are threatened because of the attacks, Ukrainian officials warned. For example, Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, was without power as temperatures hovered around freezing. The mayor of that city announced that public shelters with heat, power, and internet were operating as planned. Tim Mack, NPR News, Kyiv. President Biden is bracing for the arrival of tens of thousands of new migrants at the southern U.S. border. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports on the administration's preparation for the end of the federal policy affecting immigration, known as Title 42. The Department of Homeland Security put out a six-point plan describing how it is surging resources at the border in preparation for the end of the pandemic-era authority that allows officials to turn away migrants seeking asylum at the border. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the administration is also doubling down on operations to combat human smuggling. We'll continue to drive messaging in the region to counter disinformation from smugglers. So that's another thing uh, that we, you know, we have to keep an eye on is how the misinformation that's going to be going out to smugglers uh, in the next couple of days. Politically, Biden is also looking to fend off Republicans who have been attacking him over his administration's handling of the border. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Congress has passed a short-term spending bill that keeps the government funded for another week. This will give congressional negotiators time to wrap up talks on a year-long spending bill. A House committee has taken up the issue of whether to ban assault weapons. Several witnesses addressed the panel. That included Faith Mata. She lost her younger sister, Tess Mata, in the mass shooting earlier this year at the elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. I truly hope that this never happens to any other family in the days, months, or years to come. This debatable topic on assault rifles should not be brought up again because someone else's child or sibling was murdered. It's just an excuse at this point. Other lawmakers disagreed, saying that banning guns is only an attack on the Second Amendment. The House January 6th committee will meet on Monday. Lawmakers hope to share information from their final report. The chair of the committee has said the committee is likely to make criminal referrals to the Justice Department for prosecution. This is NPR. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Many people in college sports in Massachusetts are celebrating Governor Charlie Baker's career move. He'll become the president of the NCAA next year. WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports. Baker is the first politician to lead the main governing body for college athletics. He'll take over as the NCAA reckons with a series of court losses, including a Supreme Court decision that allows college athletes to make money from advertising deals. Boston College Athletics Director Blake James says Baker's bipartisan track record makes him the right person for the job. I think at the point we're at with college athletics right now, a fresh look to who we are is something that is going to be a real win for the student-athletes, and it's going to be a real win for all the institutions involved in the association. Baker did not seek re-election and will finish his term as governor next month. He'll start his new role in March. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The state is a step closer to opening 25 new community behavioral health centers. The facilities will treat mental health conditions and substance use disorders. They're designed to relieve overburdened hospital emergency rooms. The state cut the ribbon on one of the new centers yesterday in East Boston. State Health and Human Services Secretary Mary Lou Sutters says complete health care includes mental health care. No one should face barriers when attempting to access mental health support or substance use treatment. Emergency departments should be a last resort, not the only resort. When individuals walk through the door at North Suffolk Community Behavioral Health Center, they will have access to comprehensive, coordinated treatment. The centers will be open statewide next month. With cold weather setting in, Worcester officials are trying to find enough beds for all the people experiencing homelessness there. City officials tell MessLive there are over 200 unsheltered people in the city. That's a jump of more than 50 percent compared to last year. The city is partnering with local churches and organizations to make more shelter space available. Governor-elect Maura Healey has not yet hinted at who she might name as the new head of the Teague. MBTA General Manager Steve Poptak will step down next month before she takes office. At yesterday's MBTA Board of Directors meeting, Poptak thanked the board, the writers, and the people who work for the T. The workforce at the MBTA goes to work every day, sometimes under challenging conditions, sometimes uh, with critical comments ringing in their ears and gets the job done and gets people where they need to go. During PopTech's tenure, federal regulators identified several major safety issues at the MBTA. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. The Bruins lost to the Los Angeles Kings 3-2 in a shootout last night at the Garden. The Bees will host the Columbus Blue Jackets tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics play the Orlando Magic. Showers today, and it'll be windy. We won't see snow in Boston, but there's a chance of less than an inch in Worcester. Temperatures will be in the 30s and lower 40s. Tonight, rain in the upper 30s. The showers should end by lunchtime tomorrow. Then it'll be cloudy and in the 40s. Sunny on Sunday and near 40. It's 43 degrees in Boston at 7.07.
WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington, D.C. China is facing a massive COVID surge. Three weeks ago, China abruptly shifted away from its controversial zero COVID restrictions that had locked down cities for weeks. Those restrictions had been synonymous with Xi Jinping and chants at protests targeted the leader. That's the sound of protesters in Shanghai chanting down with Xi Jinping. Let's discuss all of this with Bill Bishop, author of the newsletter Cynicism, which analyzes current affairs in China. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. Xi Jinping is meeting with senior officials this week to devise new plans for economic recovery. Just three weeks ago, we had protesters calling on Xi and the Communist Party to step down. The government seems to have done away with much of the zero COVID policy. Is this a sign that Xi Jinping has caved into what protesters wanted? Uh, I think it's more a sign that the Communist Party caved into the reality of Omicron. You know, they, their policies worked pretty well for the first couple of years, but since Omicron has taken over as a main variant, their sort of draconian approach to dealing with COVID just was failing. And so the protests, you know, the, the government was already had had efforts underway to start figuring out how to reopen and were already making uh, signals that reopening of some form was coming. The protests, I think, were more of a crystallization of how frustrated people, so many people in China became over the last few months because of all the controls and frankly, because the economy was cratering and is cratering. Now, Chinese health officials predict 800 million people could become infected in the next few months, which is stunning. I mean, you and I both lived in China for years and we know the limitations of China's healthcare system. How do you think this will impact China, both from a health standpoint and economically? So from a health standpoint, it's it's going to be, I think, very lumpy and potentially uh, quite devastating in some places. Right now, the biggest outbreak appears to be Beijing, where, again, they stopped reporting official data. And, you know, the plenty of people said the official data may have, may have had problems. Now there's basically no data. So so anecdotally, though, wow. it sounds like it could be millions of people in Beijing have already gotten it. Beijing has the best health care in China. And so if, if Beijing is probably going to be able to weather a massive surge, and even even if the vast majority of cases uh, are mild, or as one of their leading experts yesterday said, we should really rename it corona, coronavirus cold as part of this <laughs> these propaganda efforts to downplay how severe the disease can be, the... Um, as you get out into other cities and get into the rural areas of China, I think uh, it, it's, it could it could get quite messy. I mean, we're right up right on the cusp of the annual Lunar New Year migration where you have right. tens of millions of people traveling home. So you're going to have massive spreading throughout the country. So we really all should hope that this is a much weaker virus, a much weaker variant. So obviously, the rest of the world still depends on China for much of the global supply chain. How do you think this will impact the global economy? Uh, well, I think one of the reasons they reopened so quickly was that the supply chains were being uh, tr- dramatically stressed and were causing more and more companies to think they needed to hedge out of China and find other places for supply chains. So I think what's probably going to happen is you're going to see a lot more uh, talk about supportive policies in the next days and weeks. And next year will likely 
be quite uh, quite a lot of policy support. And so we may see the kind of rebound that we saw in the U.S. Um, coming out of COVID in maybe starting in the second quarter of next year, which could actually, as some people say, could then reignite some of the inflation in the rest of the world. That's Bill Bishop. He writes the newsletter Cynicism about current affairs in China. Bill, thank you. Thank you. Russia fired more missiles at Ukraine today, knocking out power and infrastructure. Ukrainian officials say Russia plans a fresh offensive in the new year. Now, this month marks 100 years since Ukraine joined the Soviet Union. NPR's Greg Myrie has this reporting from Kyiv. The past century in Ukraine has been packed with monumental events, wars, famine, political upheavals. Yet there's a recurring theme that can be boiled down to a single sentence. Ukraine tries to break free from Russia, and Russia refuses to let it go. Volodymyr Vyotrovich is a member of Ukraine's parliament and a prominent historian. The Russian empire started to expand with Ukraine. In the mind of many Russians, their empire cannot exist without Ukraine. That's why they keep coming back. He invited me to a cafe in the Kyiv suburb of Bucha, which the Russians pulverized in the first days of the war. He lives nearby and said this was a fitting place to discuss both history and current events. When the Russians invaded before dawn on February 24th, Vyotrovich says he sent his wife and six-year-old son to western Ukraine for their safety. He drove to Kyiv for an emergency session of parliament which declared martial law. By 2 p.m. that day, he received a rifle so he could join the security forces defending the capital. It was a day of high drama in a war that's still playing out. But as a historian, Vyotrovich also sees the actions of President Vladimir Putin as part of a pattern of behavior by Russian leaders. Putin's many statements in recent years made clear he wanted to renew the Russian Empire. This was a warning to me that this war was going to happen. Ukraine first declared independence from Russia in 1918, seeking to capitalize on the collapse of the Russian monarchy a year earlier. But Vladimir Lenin and the communists, the successors to the Russian monarchy, sent troops to Ukraine and defeated that short-lived independence. With no real alternative, Ukraine formally became part of the Soviet Union a century ago on December 30, 1922. Andrew Weiss is with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He notes that Soviet leaders repeatedly crushed Ukrainian protests and rebellions, which helps explain why Ukrainians are fighting so fiercely today. If you look at all the hardships that Ukraine experienced in the 20th century, and they're vast, this is the moment where all the wrongs of the last 100 plus years need to be redressed. Ukrainians thought this matter was finally resolved in December 1991 when they held a referendum on independence. A whopping 92 percent voted in favor of going their own way. The Soviet Union collapsed later that month. But Vladimir Putin had other plans. The Russian leader says he doesn't accept Ukraine's independence, that it's really part of Russia. He even claims that only Russia can protect Ukraine from foreign invaders. Here he is earlier this month. I have said it before, but I want to say it again. Russia can be the only real guarantor of Ukraine's territorial integrity. Putin worked to install friendly, pro-Russian leaders in Ukraine. 
Ukrainians pushed back with massive street protests in 2004, and then again a decade later, leading Ukraine's president to flee to Russia in 2014. Just days after that episode, Putin invaded Ukraine. Then came his full-scale invasion this February. He never expected such a tough fight. Andrew Weiss says Ukraine is now mobilizing all of the citizens to make good on the things that people 100 years ago could only aspire to. And that's a country that will have an identity that's largely founded in opposition to Russia and in a national narrative of survival and overcoming. For Ukraine, the stakes in this war are huge. The same is also true of Russia. Russian Garry Kasparov is the former world chess champion and a staunch critic of Putin. He says the Russian leader knows he can't lose this war because... If he is losing war, especially the war of his own making, he doesn't survive. The outcome may signal the end, not just Putin's era, but the era of the empire. It's 21st century, a time for empire to go. Kasparov was still living in Russia 15 years ago when he entered politics and challenged Putin's hold on power. When it became clear that Kasparov's safety was at risk, he left Russia and now lives in New York. This year, his organization, the Renewed Democracy Initiative, is raising money for Ukraine. We see it not just as a moral duty to help Ukraine to survive and win the war, but also as an opportunity to revitalize the discussion about democracy and the values of freedom. Ukraine keep demonstrating to us that these values are worth fighting and dying for. Many military analysts warn the war is unlikely to produce a clear resolution on the battlefield. They say it's likely to require negotiations and compromises. Now, that's not a popular opinion in Ukraine. President Volodymyr Zelensky and many citizens say they want all Russian troops driven out of the country. Zelensky recently told Time magazine, quote, We're dealing with a powerful state that is pathologically unwilling to let Ukraine go. Valery Chali is Ukraine's former ambassador to the United States. We can postpone the war for the future generation. He says the region will be more stable if Ukraine wins the war and joins NATO. This is what Ukraine's government wants, though joining the alliance is highly unlikely in the near term. Buffer zone or gray zone is not good from geopolitical point of view. If you have gray zone between two security blocks, two military blocks, everybody wants to, to make a step. You know, and this has happened with Ukraine. Back in Bucha, the town pummeled by the Russians, construction workers are already rebuilding putting roofs on homes in the snow and the mud of a freezing December day. Historian Volodymyr Vyatrovich says Ukrainians believe this time the confrontation with Moscow will end differently. I believe our generation has an opportunity to put an end to this. Ukrainians are more united, more mobilized, more ready to fight than in 1918. And, he adds, now much of the world is supporting Ukraine. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a new artificial intelligence program is doing writing that many previously thought only humans could do. It's 719. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. I'm Vipa Fernandez. A new documentary depicts jazz legend Louis Armstrong as never before, in his own words, using his personal archive of home recordings. The truth is, Louis Armstrong knew one day they were going to write about him in the history books, so why not be in control of his own story? Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today is the 249th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. That's when a group called the Sons of Liberty got fed up with British taxes on tea. They stormed a ship and dumped tea into the harbor. There's a reenactment of the meeting that led to the Tea Party at the Old South Meeting House tonight. There will also be an official kickoff to next year's 250th anniversary celebrations. In your forecast, a rainy and windy day today with temperatures rising to the low 40s. The rain may turn to a little snow around Worcester. Tonight, more rain and in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, rain in the morning and it'll still be windy. Temps in the low 40s. Then in the afternoon, mostly cloudy and the high it will be in the mid 40s. It's 44 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. And from Avalara, sales tax automation for businesses of all sizes. Designed to simplify sales tax compliance with real-time rates and automatic filing. Learn more at avalara.com. And from EBSCO, with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Has artificial intelligence reached the point where a software program can do better work than you? Today, we will be talking about ChatGPT, a powerful tool that can assist with a wide range of tasks, from generating human-like text to providing helpful answers to questions. We'll be exploring the capabilities of ChatGPT and how it is being used in various industries. In fact, the last two sentences I just read to you were written not by me, but by ChatGPT, a bot. A professor at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania, Ethan Mollock, has also been experimenting with ChatGPT. He joins me now to show me how ChatGPT works. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Ethan, I was exposed to ChatGPT when I was hanging out with some friends this weekend, and we were talking about this very interview. And suddenly, the heads of all the teenagers in the room popped up and they said, oh, we have that on our cell phones. This apparently is a thing among teenagers. 
It is, um, I think, a universal thing very quickly. There's a sort of TikTok fun phenomenon, but also I would challenge you to find a single school where there are not a large number of people using this in their classes, whether the teachers know it or not. And how do they typically use it? I mean, there's a few things, right? So the most obvious thing and the thing people come away with if they play with ChatGPT for just a few minutes is, wow, I can cheat on essays with this thing. Uh-huh. Uh, and then if they spend a couple more minutes, they say, well, I can cheat on creating software code or translating language. But the uses actually go way beyond that. And I've been amazed by what some of my students have been reporting about how they're using the capabilities. Well, explain that a little. What other non-cheating uses can it offer us? Well, I mean, so many, but just on the education side, you can actually use it to, you can paste in an essay and ask it to correct it. You can paste in entire academic papers and ask it to summarize it. You can ask it to find an error in your code and correct it and tell you why you got it wrong. It really is this general companion for all kinds of purposes. So I now have ChatGPT opened up in front of me on a laptop. Uh, can you walk me through this? How, how do I use this? So it, the best way to think about this is you are chatting with a omniscient, eager to please intern who sometimes lies to you. And um, <laughs> if you sort of take that approach, you're going to be in great shape. All right. Let's have it describe something, explain something to us. What's something that you're interested in that we can have it write an essay to us about? And then let's, let's play with that a little bit. Well, I'm, I'm in public radio, so maybe a story, a radio story? Sure. Pick a topic. Uh, let's talk about frogs. Great. Why don't we say create an NPR story about frogs? Can you create an NPR story about frogs? Perfect. Title, The Fascinating World of Frogs. As anyone who has visited a pond or marsh on a warm summer evening can attest, frogs are a common and fascinating part of our natural world. These amphibians, which belong to the order Anura, are known for their distinctive croaking calls and their ability to hop and swim with ease. It just goes on and on. It's talking about a giant Goliath frog. It's talking about tiny frogs that are the size of your fingernail. Yeah, this is, this is a little long. Uh, why don't you actually just have it do it as a rhyming poem instead? So just say, can you do this as a rhyming poem? Yeah. Can you write this as a rhyming poem? Here we go. In ponds and marshes on a warm summer night, you'll hear the croaks of frogs, a common sight. They belong to the order Anura, you see, with a unique life cycle for you and me. I was expecting a little more from ChatGPT, to be honest. I, so okay, I'm starting to understand both the uh, curiosity of this as well as the limitations of this. How have you used ChatGPT? So in education, I actually tried to figure out how much I could automate in my job. And I'm, I'm a professor of entrepreneurship at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. I teach MBAs. So I asked to create an MBA syllabus. And, um, Wait, you asked, you, you asked Chat GPT to create an MBA syllabus? Absolutely. I mean, it created a pretty good syllabus for an MBA class. And then I said, okay, well, that's interesting. Could you create a final assignment for that class? It gave me the final assignment. Again, a really nice business plan assignment. Can you give me the grading rubric for it? It broke down the grading and gave me a table of points. I said, could you give me the beginning of the second lecture that I would have to give in this MBA syllabus? And it wrote me the lecture. It's this huh. multiplier of ability that I think we're not quite getting our heads around that is absolutely stunning. When we started this conversation, we started talking about how the, you know, some of the first users are teenagers because they use it to, to cheat on essays. 
What are some of the concerns and ethical implications uh, that this calls into question? I think we are just barely starting to get our hands around this. You know, is it ethical to have the AI write you a draft that you modify? Is it ethical for you to paste in text and ask it to improve it? You add in the other aspect, it's frequently wrong or lies with complete confidence. How do we work with that piece? So I think we don't understand what the implications of this are yet. And I think they're much more profound than people are thinking. It, it, it's going to replace all of us. So just be ready for that. Really? Is this really going to replace I, all of us? I don't think anyone knows what the future really holds. There, there's two options, right? Option one is it multiplies your ability to do work because you can have it do 10 drafts of a story and keep the stuff you like. So the, in the best version of the world, you are out there and you're going to use this to multiply your work 10 or 12 times. And I already hear people doing this all the time. They're using this to create bios, agendas, whatever you want, write letters. Sure. But I mean, you're, you're saying multiply your work, but at the same time, I can also foresee something like this, if it has a little more accuracy, to actually take people's jobs. It could, it could report on news and you wouldn't know whether it's factual or not. Absolutely. I, I actually, um, I was just interviewed on a television station live where it turns out all the questions were asked by ChatGPT and I didn't know it. They sound great. This is what I mean. I actually think that there is sort of a dawning realization you have when you play with this, which is, what do we do? So I was giving you the upside case. The upside case is it multiplies your capabilities and intelligence a hundred times. The downside is, how many of us do we need? And I don't have answers to those questions. Ethan Mollick is a professor at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. Ethan, thank you. Excellent. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Democratic Party's plan to start its presidential primaries in Georgia faces opposition from many, including Georgia state officials. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in medical, regulatory, and other groups at VRTX.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Ukraine's military says it shot down most of the Russian missiles fired at targets inside the country today. Officials in Kyiv say the Russian airstrikes targeted energy infrastructure. The death toll in Malaysia is up to 18 following a landslide that struck a campground popular with tourists. NPR's Michael Sullivan says more than a dozen people are still missing. The landslide occurred at an organic farm that allows camping about 30 miles north of the capital, Kuala Lumpur. The district police chief says nearly 100 Malaysians were at the site when the landslide occurred and that hundreds of rescue workers are involved in the search for those missing. It's not known what triggered the landslide. Stock futures remain on the downside this morning following yesterday's broad sell-off on Wall Street. The Dow lost more than 2 percent yesterday. The Nasdaq shed more than 3 percent. The selling was sparked in part by yesterday's report showing a drop in retail sales in the U.S. in November. That came a day after the Federal Reserve announced a half-point hike in interest rates, the Fed's seventh rate increase of the year. Investors are increasingly nervous that these increased rates are going to flow through into the economy, pulling the economy back in and pulling it so far in that it leads to recession. 
That's Susan Schmidt, the head of private equity at the State of Wisconsin Investment Board. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. New Hampshire officials say they have no intention of giving up what might be the state's greatest claim to fame, its first in the nation presidential primary. That's despite a move by the Democratic National Committee and President Biden to change New Hampshire's spot on the primary calendar. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports. The DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee has endorsed a primary schedule supported by President Biden. If approved by the full DNC, South Carolina would vote first. New Hampshire and Nevada would go a week later. But New Hampshire officials say no state does a better job of vetting presidential candidates than theirs. Senator Gene Shaheen summed up the state's position this way. We have a state law that says we're going to go first, so we're going to go first. But the DNC says it's important to give states with more diverse populations, like South Carolina, a chance to vote early. And the DNC could punish New Hampshire by not seating its delegates if the state refuses to go along. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. A judge is dismissing a lawsuit filed by parents at a Western Massachusetts middle school over their kids' gender identity. The judge ruled that school officials in Ludlow did not violate the parents' civil rights by supporting two students who identified as gender fluid. The students asked to keep the information from their parents. The school agreed to do that. The lawsuit was dismissed because of the state's anti-discrimination law. With just over a week before Christmas, you may be asking yourself a familiar question. Which is better for the environment, a real Christmas tree or a fake one? Andy Fenton is a forest ecologist for the Nature Conservancy of Massachusetts. He says real trees are usually bought locally and can be composted. But he notes that buying real isn't an option for everyone and suggests getting the most out of your fake tree if you choose that option. Use it as long as you can. If you can use it for multiple years, and it's always tempting to get something new, but if you can use it for multiple years, it really minimizes the environmental and climate impact of that artificial tree. And when you're done with it, see if someone else wants it, take it to a secondhand shop, maximize the lifespan of that artificial tree. Fenton says people should do their best to keep fake and real trees out of landfills where they take a long time to decompose. It's 734. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. You can give the gift of a holiday meal for just $30. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. In sports, the Bruins squandered a two-goal lead last night at the Garden. They lost to the L.A. Kings 3-2 in a shootout. The Bees still haven't lost at home in regulation this season. They'll host the Columbus Blue Jackets tomorrow. The Celtics are back at the Garden tonight to play the Orlando Magic. Showers all day today in the low 40s. Add some high winds and it's going to be a sloppy day. Tonight, rain in upper 30s. The wet weather continues tomorrow with rain in the morning, clouds in the afternoon, and gusty winds all day. Sunny on Sunday, though, with a high near 40. It's 44 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world, with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at LittlePassports.com NPR. This is NPR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Elon Musk is a loud and self-professed champion of free speech. Last night, though, he suspended the accounts of several journalists from major news outlets. Their offense? Tweeting out publicly available information about the location of private planes used by Musk and his family. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen joins us now with more. Uh, Bobby, it's been uh, quite a ride for Twitter the last few months. Uh, How did we get here? Yeah, it really has been. So there's a bit of a history here. Um, you know, a longtime thorn in the side of Elon Musk has been this account known as Elon Jet. And it tracks, as you mentioned, the flight activity of Musk's private jets using publicly available information. It's run by this 20-year-old University of Florida student who loves aviation. Well, Musk offered him $5,000 to shut it down, and he refused. That was before Musk owned Twitter. Now that Musk does own Twitter, he decided to crack down. Musk has suspended the account. He changed Twitter policy, saying live information about someone's travel is basically doxing. But things really took a shocking turn, A, when Musk last night suspended the accounts of about half a dozen high-profile journalists for simply writing about Elon Jet or tweeting links to it. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, it's kind of surprising, right? That's what got those journalists suspended. Yeah, exactly. And so Twitter says the journalist will be suspended for seven days and that future violators of this policy will face a similar fate. But look, it's important to emphasize here that these journalists didn't have some kind of special surveilling powers, right? They were The journalists were writing about an account that tracked Musk's jets, right? It started and ended with airports. Uh, we just knew what cities he or his jets were visiting. But Musk says that was enough to send what he described as a, quote, crazy stalker chasing after a car that one of his kids was riding. And Musk hasn't backed up the allegation with any documentation, but that is what he cited. Yeah. Now, so how have press freedom advocates responded to all this? They are extremely alarmed. Jamil Jaffer, who heads the night First Amendment Institute at Columbia University uh, said, you know, it's disturbing, especially for someone who styles himself a champion of free speech. Other press advocates said it sets a dangerous precedent, right? Having this powerful billionaire who controls what's basically the front page of the Internet banning journalists based on a personal animus. So what do you think, Bobby? I mean, do we all have to sit now and be worried about retweeting something and all of a sudden get suspended somehow? Is that how it's going to work? I guess so, eh? I mean, the big lesson here is Twitter policy is written at the whim of Elon Musk, right? And that can mean uh, professional journalists like you and I trying to do our jobs. You know, I'm a tech reporter. I cover Elon and cover Twitter. Maybe one day I'll be caught in the middle and be suspended, right? I mean, his rules are arbitrary and constantly moving. They're hard to keep up with. And another lesson here, I think, is increasingly Twitter is just becoming a place that is openly hostile to journalists. I mean, Musk has long been at war with the media, but silencing high-profile journalists for linking to publicly available information about his private jets, I think, is really a new low point in Musk's relationship with the media. How does the line go? Retweets are not an endorsement because they might get me suspended? <laughs> exactly. Something like that? Yeah. That's NPR's Bobby Allen. Bobby, thanks. Thanks, A. The Democratic Party has laid out a new vision for its presidential primaries, calling to shake up which states vote first. One state that's favored to move up to the early window is Georgia. But as Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler reports, Georgia's Republican Secretary of State is not accommodating Democrats' plans. When a panel inside the Democratic National Committee voted to revamp the presidential primary calendar, that was the easy part. All those in favor of the motion, please say aye. 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 
Opposed say nay. Nay. Georgia Congresswoman Nakima Williams is chair of the state Democratic Party and is totally on board with the plan that has the Peach State included early. I like to say we're the center of the political universe, and that is not going to change this cycle or next cycle. This is going to continue for years to come. And the fact that we are being prioritized, that speaks volumes for both Democrats and Republicans. But actually executing this Democratic calendar shakeup will not be simple. Iowa and New Hampshire may do their own thing after getting demoted. Michigan has state laws that need changing. And even in Georgia, the ultimate decider of their primary date is a Republican who says for now his hands are tied. It'd be kind of cool to have the election day be sooner for Georgia for the primary, but this office will do nothing that will hurt the um, uh, number of delegates or violate the, the rules of either one of the parties. That's Gabriel Sterling, the Georgia Secretary of State's chief operating officer. The secretary, Brad Raffensperger, is a Republican and part of a Republican-controlled state government who works with a Republican-controlled legislature. But Sterling says his boss keeping the status quo isn't partisan, but rather about protecting election workers and following rules set by the parties. We're not going to have two different primaries because that's a lot of stress and strain on poll workers and counties. We're going to have one presidential preference primary day and whichever one has the furthest out amount of rules around that which right now is the Republicans, we will stick with with that, which means we will have a March primary. Because while Democrats are eager to alter the order, the Republican National Committee has not changed who goes first. The shakeup that we're seeing now has really big consequences. That's Bernard Fraga, a political science professor at Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, it really kind of disturbs the, the order that both parties really relied upon. And it, it provides a set of incentives for these early states to get a lot more media attention. Fraga says Georgia becoming an earlier state would bring increased investment in political and financial capital. Also, the press that are going to be following around these candidates and also surrogates that live in the state, congressional representatives from the Democratic Party in particular, might play a larger role than they otherwise would in the nominating process. And while Raffensperger says Republican rules are limiting his options, Williams, the Democratic state party chair, says a more prominent spot benefits both parties. You look at the past couple of cycles in Georgia, we were elevated as a premier battleground state in this country. And battleground states work in favor of both Democrats and Republicans because we have to make our case to the voters. There's still plenty of time for changes in rules and changes of heart in settling the primary pecking order. And in Georgia, Raffensperger doesn't have to set a date until next fall. But the DNC is asking those early state contenders to provide an update on their status by January 5th. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. Coming up later today on All Things Considered, hospitals can be lonely places for patients around the holidays. But at one hospital in Austin, Texas, patients and staff are very excited about the World Cup, an event that for the first time is taking place at the end of the year. To listen, please stream NPR on your smartphone or computer or just listen to us on the radio. This is NPR News. 
I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, we just heard about Georgia possibly moving up the calendar for presidential contests. In our next hour, WBOR's Anthony Brooks shows us how New Hampshire leaders are fighting to keep their spot as the first in the nation primary. Coming up next on Morning Edition, what you might want to consider when choosing whether to buy or sell a company's stock in the current market. And your forecast, brace yourself for a soggy combination of wind and rain today into tomorrow. Rain in low 40s this morning, showers in upper 30s tonight. Saturday, low 40s, rainy and windy, then cloudy. It dries up for a sunny day in the low 40s on Sunday. Right now it's 44 degrees in Boston at 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit tackling the world's biggest sustainability challenges, including the climate and water crises. Help Ceres build a just and sustainable future for your children and future generations. Please consider a year-end donation. Make a difference at ceres.org slash WBUR. Now, in business news, workers at a Starbucks in the Wabin neighborhood of Newton are among those at more than 100 cafes nationwide going on strike today. Starbucks Workers United says employees are walking off the job to protest what they call anti-union actions by the coffee giant. The group says some of the strikes may last the weekend. There's been no comment from Starbucks. The Dogwood restaurant in Jamaica Plain will soon close after nearly 30 years in business. The announcement follows news that the restaurant's property was sold for over $2 million earlier this month. The Dogwood's last day in business is January 14th. It's 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. And from Bed Bath & Beyond with storage products too, featuring a curated selection of brands like Dyson, KitchenAid, and UGG. More at bedbathandbeyond.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Martinez. A standard way professionals decide to buy or sell stocks is to look at a company's fundamentals, such as its sales. But others decide on their trades by taking a ruler to a stock or bond price chart and draw some shapes. It's called chart reading or technical analysis. Darian Woods and Mary Childs from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explain. Helene Meiser has been working in financial markets for four decades, and she writes a column for realmoney.com. I am always looking for patterns, be it in charts, in numbers, everywhere. In 1989, Helene was hired as the first person at Goldman Sachs to specialize in chart reading techniques. Nowadays, it's definitely not mainstream at big firms like Goldman Sachs, but you do see chart reading analysis at big firms from time to time. And we should say that Helene complements her chart reading with other information, like surveys of sentiment and economic indicators and industry news. But she strongly believes in the validity of chart reading as one tool. There is a certain feeling you get from putting the pencil to the paper. I might not remember stock prices all the time, but if you ask me about a stock chart that I post by hand, I've got that pattern in my head and I pretty much know what that pattern looks like. So how do you guard against knowing what is a real pattern and just a trick of the mind? Yes. I notoriously see head and shoulders patterns, bottoms and tops in every chart. I just do. Um, 
and uh, whether or not they work out is a whole nother story, but it's just how my mind works. Academics in finance have poured over stock market and bond market data, and the evidence is not looking good for chart readers. Like, just because a stock was doing well on Monday and Tuesday, it has no relationship with whether it'll do well on Wednesday. Now, the odd study has found evidence in favor of the chart readers some of the time. But most academics are very skeptical, and so is Katie Martin, the markets editor for the Financial Times, who popularized the vomiting camel shape. The whole thing is very obviously, to my mind, a joke. In 2014, Katie wanted to highlight what she thought was the absurdity of chart reading. So she borrowed an idea that she'd seen on the internet and started drawing a new shape over chart after chart. So she's tracing the peaks in price going up and down and up and down and down again. And when she looked at it, she saw a vomiting camel. I thought it was just flat out funny that you could see this, you know, stupid pattern that had been like crudely drawn on with like MS paint or something over the top of this chart to make it look like a vomiting camel. But a few years later, crypto trading YouTubers started taking the vomiting camel seriously. This is called a vomiting camel pattern. And this is real, <laughs> by the way. I'm really? not even joking. This is actually real. Katie does concede that there might be some situations when chart reading does work. Like if everyone believes that a certain pattern means that there's going to be a rally, then that could be a self-fulfilling prophecy. But overall, she just says it doesn't make sense to her. I don't want to spoil people's fun, and I know that people have made money out of this, and that's fine, that's great, that's up to them. But there are no certainties in this business, and you have to take sort of thing with a massive pinch of salt. Mary Childs. Darian Woods, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy Friday. Happy Friday on this rainy morning. So, okay, so yesterday we're preparing for this whole segment mm-hmm. on transition teams, right? Transition to of the governorship. And we get news of a pretty big transition for the current governor. Mm-hmm. So we're going to dive beneath the headlines on Charlie Baker's taking over the NCAA today, which, you know, he starts in March. We've got a woman who runs a local nonprofit that looks at race and gender equity, former pro basketball player, former college basketball player. We have a specialist on gambling because that's a huge issue, college gambling, that NCAA is going to face. Mm-hmm. We've got somebody who knows the business and challenges of the NCAA. And we're going to look at, OK, so wait. Why is Charlie Baker the one? What will he likely be good at? What will he likely be challenged by? And what do student athletes need from him in this new stewardship role? A bad joke that's been going around this morning is that some his height had something to do with it. <laughs> well, you know, we could talk about that one another time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. Thank you, Tiziana. Hey, Rupa. Thanks. It's 751.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at zevin.com. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene will be a potent force in the Republican-controlled House. What will she do with her influence? She was chagrined to have seen that the Republicans, when they did possess power, did, in her view, nothing with it. And so she intends to see a completion of the MAGA agenda that Trump had begun. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Rachel Martin. Alicia Keys, Christmas album. Does she really need more of an intro than that? I can't believe she hasn't done one before now, honestly. It just came out, and it's named after the first song on the album, Santa Baby. Eartha Kitt actually debuted that one back in 1953, and it was quite scandalous at the time. Very sultry for a Christmas song. Alicia Keys has the same fun with it. Hello, Santa. Is this really you? Well, I know that you're not supposed to do this, but I do have a little list. And I've been such a good girl. I know I deserve it. You want to hear it? Santa baby, just slip a sable under the tree for me. This is definitely one of my all-time favorite Christmas songs. I love the meaning. As a songwriter, I love the double entendre of this song. I love everything about this song. I love the playfulness, I love the funniness, the cheekiness. Santa cutie and fill my stocking with the duplex and checks. Sign your X on the line. I love that, you know, this is it's even so anti kind of what I usually feel like about the holidays, you know, with it being so material. And I love just enveloping that character of that person who is like, this is all the things I deserve, which, by the way, I do think on just a other level, we do deserve everything that we could possibly want. I do. I do think that we should have that mentality. You got some Vince Guaraldi on this album. Yes. I love Vince Guaraldi. Yeah. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Christmas time is here. Happiness and cheer. Fun for all the children call their favorite time of year. Did you grow up with Charlie Brown specials? Of course, totally yeah. grew up with Charlie Brown specials. I want to say that the Christmas time is here song is my mixture of young Michael Jackson meets Quincy Jones meets Vince Guaraldi. And that's how I was thinking of this song in regards to all the the stacks of harmonies. To me, that feels very off the wall, Michael Jackson. And then that jazz element that Vince Guaraldi just does so beautiful. Yeah. Speaking of Michael Jackson, um, you've got uh, some originals on the album. December, Back to June. Yeah. 
know, it sounds just like a Jackson 5 sample. That's my favorite part about this song. Yeah. It is, it is a sample-free song. That's Are what's even serious? better about it. I know. Wow. It totally sounds like the young Michael Jackson on there. The producer, Tommy Parker, who worked with me on this song, he created that whole voice. He pitched up his voice. And so that whole Michael Jackson sound no is actually a, a brand new copyright. It really is talking about how at this time for Christmas, I don't even need any wishes because I have the love that I'm looking for. And and so I think that definitely is the sentiment of the song, that love and this good energy that I think we all call towards us and want for the holidays is something we can have all year round. And so that's why it's called December Back to June. And and when I was thinking about the holiday album, I really wanted there to be a diversity there between kind of the classics that you know and creating new classics. Speaking of classics, Ave Maria, Alicia. Yes. It's a big old song. <laughs> it really is. I love my favorite version of Ave Maria is the Stevie Wonder version on the Motown Christmas album. Ah. Oh. feel like he kills, kills, kills in the best way. Yeah. That vocal and that vibe. And I just love how soulful it still feels. Ave Maria. So can I ask technically about the song? Because I will divulge that I, I don't know how I got wrangled into this but i sang ave maria at my brother's wedding and i was hey. like oh this is no problem like everyone knows ave maria it's great it's great it's great it is so technically hard to sing i mean there's just like a lot of octaves it's just a lot of transitions did you find the song challenging or do you just have to take it out of its original framework and just totally reimagine it for yourself Yes to all. It is a complex song. <laughs> yeah, that feels it validating. Is, Thank you. You know, it is. It, it is tricky to sing. The breath work is tremendously hard to have those long, drawn-out notes and still be able to get to all of the beautiful, you know, just expressions. It is hard for sure. There's no question about it. It's a prayer, Ave Maria. Are you a praying person? I am, I'm all about prayer. I love connecting to a higher source. You know, I'm big on praying before everything, meals, flights, food, at the end of the night with the kids, in the morning when we wake up. It's mm. like, I feel like gratitude is, a, is the ultimate gift. And it's, I think it's also the ultimate way to attract good things your way when you're able to give thanks and be grateful for Every moment, you know, I think you open yourself up to receiving. I love prayer, it's beautiful. Alicia Keys, it's been such a pleasure. Happy holidays to you and yours. Happy holidays to you too. Her new Christmas album is called Santa Baby. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Rachel Martin. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm A. Martinez. We'll have wind and rain all day today, tonight, and into tomorrow morning. Temperatures will be in the low 40s during the day and upper 30s at night. But at least it's Friday. It's 44 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic, fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Congress has averted a partial government shutdown with a stopgap spending bill that gives them another week to reach a final deal. It's Friday, December 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, human rights groups are warning that democracy is regressing into autocracy in Tunisia. These elections are coming under a coup. The president made by himself the new constitution. He made by himself the electoral uh, law. Also, Democrats are considering ending New Hampshire's run as the first in the nation presidential primary, but the state's political leaders say not so fast. We have a state law that says we're going to go first, so we're going to go first. (laughs) And this hour, five officers in Louisiana face criminal charges in the 2019 brutal beating death of Ronald Green. In sports, the Bruins lose rainy, windy, and in the low 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Congress has beat today's deadline and passed a short-term spending bill. This will keep the federal government funded for another week. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the stopgap spending bill gives negotiators time to finish work on a long-term spending bill. Nobody's going to get everything they want, but the final product will include wins everyone can get behind, including passing the Electoral Count Act, emergency aid for Ukraine, and funding for our kids, our veterans, our small businesses, and our military families. Congress has also passed the National Defense Authorization Act. That's worth $858 billion. This includes a pay raise for troops of 4.6 percent. Republicans also succeeded in forcing lawmakers to lift the COVID-19 vaccine mandate for the military. The House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol meets on Monday. Members hope to share more extensive findings from their final report. NPR's Claudia Grisales tells us the panel is set to cover committee referrals for criminal prosecution. House Select Committee Chairman Benny Thompson told NPR the report still has to go through a printer and a series of technical corrections, which could impact how much is shared at Monday's meeting. We plan to accept as much of the work of the committee on Monday. Uh, If there are some technical issues, you know, I can't answer that, but the committee's expectation is to share all that information. The panel is also expected to vote Monday on criminal referrals and other recommendations tied to former President Trump and his allies. Claudia Grisales, NPR News. 
Washington. A Louisiana grand jury has charged five law enforcement officers in the deadly arrest of black motorist Ronald Green. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports the charges include negligent homicide, malfeasance, and obstruction of justice. These are the first charges to come in the 2019 death of 49-year-old Ronald Green. He was arrested after a high-speed chase, and authorities initially told his family he died in a car crash near Monroe, Louisiana. But long-suppressed body cam footage obtained by the Associated Press last year showed state troopers stunning him, punching him, dragging him by ankle shackles, and leaving him face down as he begged for mercy. A Union Parish grand jury has been hearing evidence for a month, including a medical expert who classifies Green's death a homicide, contrary to the original coroner's report that listed the cause of death as cocaine-induced delirium complicated by a motor vehicle collision. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Governor Charlie Baker will soon be the leader of college sports. He'll become president of the NCAA in March, about two months after he leaves office. Boston University Athletic Director Drew Marichello believes it's a good move. He wants Baker to consider the needs of all schools, big or small. I think he's he's a leader, and he, he is known for doing what's right. Uh, he's known for managing uh, so-called across the aisle and, and managing uh complex situations in a caring way. Marikello says one of the major issues facing Baker is a college or university's use of a student-athlete's name, image, or likeness. That issue was the subject of a key Supreme Court ruling. Harvard University has its first black president. Claudine Gay is the daughter of Haitian immigrants. She'll be just the second woman chosen to lead the Ivy League school. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, Gay says she hopes to leave Harvard's ivory tower reputation in the past. Harvard already knows Claudine Gay. She first came to campus in the early 1990s as a doctoral student in government. She's currently dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. Faced with big social problems like climate change and a fractured democracy, Gay says she wants Harvard to see itself as part of the solution. We don't exist outside of society, but as part of it. And that means that Harvard has a duty to lean in and engage and to be in service to the world. Gay says a pending Supreme Court case on affirmative action won't change Harvard's commitment to hosting a diverse student body, but that the university will comply with the law. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The Department of Public Utilities says the Green Line has a speeding problem. It's telling the T to come up with a better plan to track and record instances when its operators are going too fast. Elizabeth Solucci is the director of the DPU's Transportation Oversight Division. She says the department first told the T to track speeding on the line earlier this year, but it seems that's not happening. And we know from our own field activities that overspeeding happens. So there must be a more effective way to identify green line speeding so that it may be prevented. Salucci says speeding instances should be closely monitored until a new collision prevention system is installed on the line.
Three members of Congress from Massachusetts are pushing for postal workers who get COVID on the job to keep getting workers' comp. The federal funding is set to expire next week. Representatives Ayanna Presley, Lori Trahan, and Stephen Lynch say that postal workers have a higher risk of getting COVID because of their jobs, and with high demand for their services during the holidays, they should continue to be supported. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. The Bruins lost to the Los Angeles Kings last night in a shootout. The final at the Garden was 3-2. to two. The Bees will host the Columbus Blue Jays. Jackets tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics take on the Orlando Magic. Showers today, and it'll be windy. We won't see snow in Boston, but there's a chance of less than an inch in Worcester. Temperatures will be in the 30s and lower 40s. Tonight, rain, and in the upper 30s, the showers should end by lunchtime tomorrow. Then it'll be cloudy and in the 40s. Sunny on Sunday and near 40. It's 43 degrees in Boston at 808. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. Nearly 12 years ago, a wave of revolt started right here in Tunisia and spread across the Middle East and North Africa. People demanded freedom of speech, opportunity, and a say in who governed them. Autocrats toppled in Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya. But Tunisia was the only nation to emerge with a nascent democracy. Until now, rights groups say it appears to be regressing back to autocracy under President Kais Saeed in a global trend of populist leaders getting elected. Earlier this week, a protest grew near the clock tower on the main avenue in the center of Tunis. I'm looking at probably four or 5,000 people waving Tunisian flags, chanting things like down with the coup, out Kai Saeed, days before a parliamentary election that many are saying are part of an undemocratic process. A group of young men and women stand in a circle and begin to sing. The feeling of freedom has melted our handcuffs. Among the demonstrators, we find Manal Mbarek, a 38-year-old lawyer. Are you voting on December 17th? No, no, no. Why? These elections are coming under a coup. The president made by himself the new constitution. He made by himself the electoral law. So no, we are not participating in such a comedy. Mbedek actually voted for the president. A lot of people here did. When he was elected, he was pretty popular. That's waned, but it's not gone. Malak Manari happened upon the protest. I don't understand why they're here, why, why they want to get rid of Thai society. He still needs time to go forward. So you like him? He didn't bring the bad situation with him. It has always been there. Who brought the bad situation? It's another who done, who's done most of the wrong things. 
The Islamist party and Nahda has dominated every parliamentary election since Tunisia's revolution. Nearby, we meet with Salim Kharat at his office. Hi. Hi. Salim, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. He heads Al Bausala, a Tunisian government watchdog group. I came with my questions, but he had his own. Are you able to do your work? Uh, I will say... We are not supposed to talk to you. You're not? No, with, within the new law. We are not supposed to speak to uh, foreign journalists. Isn't that your entire job? To watchdog and to speak on this issue? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's a dictatorship. It's one of several decisions by the president aimed at suppressing critics. But that didn't stop Kharat and others from speaking with us. His was one of the first Tunisian civil society organizations to sound the alarm when Saeed sacked the elected parliament on July 25th. It was very obvious from the beginning for us that it was not respectful to the constitution and it was uh, a decision that the president took alone. And the days after this move, we saw that we were uh, right. <laughs> when we see the events that uh, follow it, it was a very popular move when he did it. People were very angry Yeah, but angry we have to understand parliament. why it was popular. Since the revolution, Tunisians had seen one political crisis after the next. So much political infighting that nothing was getting done to reform an economic system plagued by corruption and cronyism. To keep the state afloat, the government kept taking on debt. Decision makers lacked courage, and the result is that one single person took the liberty to hijack the economic transition. Now it's, I mean, we no longer have margins. The state is on the verge of economic collapse. Other partners of Tunisia put a condition in order to help Tunisia. We had no solutions other than to negotiate a new IMF program. And when you have to negotiate such a program, uh, you have to accept very harsh conditions. So since July 25th, what has the president done in the days since that day? Ignoring all the communications that al Bausala and several other actors of the civil society took to uh, say to the president, OK, stop, you have to stop. We saw that a lot of journalists, a lot of civil servants, and also a lot of politicians were pursued by military courts, which is in terms of international standards, which is unacceptable. Has Tunisia returned to autocracy? Is democracy Tunisia, dead? Tunisia, in its own her, her way, it's on the way of autocracy. The legislative elections of uh, this week is one of the last steps of this process that the uh, president implemented by himself. What the government says is this is the only way to preserve Tunisia's democracy. The parliament wasn't working, the population was angry, and the new constitution passed with popular support. Yeah, the, the popular support was quite uh, relative because uh, it was low <laughs> only three out of ten Tunisians uh, did vote. Uh, if I had the president or, or, or its prime minister in front of me, I would ask them a, a very simple question. You had two years without any kind of opposition. You were alone to take any kind of decision you wanted to take. What are the results? I mean, they are governing alone. But what did they do since two years? Nothing. Saeed rode to power on a wave of anger among Tunisians against the political establishment, a lot of it aimed at the Islamist party and Nahda. They have been a very dominant party since 10 years. So they are seen by uh, the majority of Tunisians as the main responsible of this situation. And Nahda did not do its mea culpa. What do they need to apologize for? To explain why the parliament was inefficient under their rule, 
to explain their own responsibility in terms of economic and, and social crisis and to say sorry to people who are suffering from this. So we head to Anahta's party headquarters and meet with its longtime leader, Rashid Ghannoushi, the speaker of the parliament until last year. Yes, we were part of the government and we have our part of uh, responsibility, but we did not uh, rule the country alone. It is normal that there would be an anti-revolution, but at least in 10 years we succeeded to maintain freedom and, and liberty. At 81, his hands tremor. He wears a Tunisian flag pin on his lapel. He recounts the day the president dissolved the elected parliament. It was one of the darkest days in Tunisia's history. We were at Nahda's uh, uh, offices and we uh, had to declare from the beginning, from the first day, that this was a coup. After the press conference, we went to the parliament. We found a tank in front of the main gate and we told the soldier, why do you prohibit us from entering our house, the house of people? We entered the parliament by elections and you want to get us out of it with a tank. And since that day, you've had to appear in court. So the co-maker uh, had decided to sue 123 parliamentary members in the martial court. All of the parliamentary members are being taken to military courts? All, all, all of them. All of them have been sued under some law article that can lead them even to death sentence. So is there a possibility that you would face the death sentence? All of this is possible depending on the judge. The uh, President of the Republic and the Minister of Justice are uh, putting a lot of pressure on the judges. The parliamentary elections on Saturday, what do they represent for Tunisia in your view? Misleading people. Misleading people because he created the game, he, he decided the rules of the game, so what is left for, for the others or for people is just, just playing the game that he decided for them. All the international community and the international organization should know that they are dealing with an illegitimate regime. There is, a, or at least for a lot of people, there is a general loss of faith in the political system, that people's lives are not better they're just tired of political paralysis, political infighting, and there's a lot of anger towards your party. They feel that the party turned a blind eye to extremists in the country. In some cases, members may be inciting violence. When you look back at the last 12 years, are there things you think should have been different or done differently? This is uh, very understandable. I mean, uh, Anahda is the oldest party in the country. It's the biggest party in the country. It is the most organized party in the country. They were not able to compete with us in the ballot boxes, so they are trying to, to compete with us by defamation and by accusing us. I personally have uh, six cases in court. They're all about terrorism. They all can lead to death sentence. They're not able to prove it on me, and, and I've never been arrested or taken to jail. I'll just go uh, do the investigations and come back home. I ask him if he thinks his party owes the country an apology for how bad the economy got before the parliament was disbanded. 
The revolution had two main goals. One was uh, democracy and the other one was development. And in 10 years, we succeeded to fulfill the democracy part. We did not succeed in fulfilling the uh, development part because it requires a certain stability. We are uh, a new democracy, so we didn't settle everything, but Qaisaid came and brought us back to the before the democracy. But it also sounds like you acknowledge that some mistakes were made by your party that was dominant in the parliament. Of course, we are not prophets. The biggest mistake is that we voted for Qaisaid, and that we have been seduced by his vague words. We made mistakes, but we made no crimes against our people. They accuse us of uh, corruption, but no one was able to prove any corrupted member of another. In a sea of divided political parties, this weekend they finally unite in their boycott of this election. We requested interviews with Tunisia's president, the prime minister, and foreign minister, but so far, none were granted. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, there's a lot at stake for both France and Argentina as they face each other in the World Cup final on Sunday. And in 20 minutes, for the first time since World War II, Japan plans to acquire the ability to strike other nations. It's 820. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. I'm Deepa Fernandez. A new documentary depicts jazz legend Louis Armstrong as never before, in his own words, using his personal archive of home recordings. The truth is, Louis Armstrong knew one day they were going to write about him in the history books, so why not be in control of his own story? Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A rainy and windy day today with a high near 44. The rain may turn to a little snow around Worcester. Tonight, more rain and a low around 38. Tomorrow, rain in the morning and it'll still be windy. Then in the afternoon, mostly cloudy with a high near 44. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Clarivate, creators of the Ideas to Innovation podcast an exploration into solutions designed to address the world's most complex problems at clarivate.com slash podcasts.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Rob Schmitz. We are two days away from what's expected to be a thrilling final at the World Cup in Qatar. The big storylines for finalists Argentina and France, the French are trying to become the first team since Brazil in 1962 to win back-to-back titles. Argentina wants to win one for the legendary forward Lionel Messi, who has won just about everything in soccer except a World Cup title. The stakes could not be bigger. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman joins us from Doha for an early look at this matchup. Good morning, Tom. Hi, Rob. I am so excited about this final. Neither of these teams is an overwhelming favorite. Do we have any recent history between them that might provide clues about who may prevail here? Well, if four years ago is recent enough, France beat Argentina 4-3 in the round of 16 at the last World Cup. Uh Both stars of the current teams played in that match. France's Kylian Mbappe got the better of Lionel Messi. Mbappe scored twice, and it was part of his breakout performance as a 19-year-old at that World Cup. So is that a good enough roadmap to favor France on Sunday? Uh, Not necessarily. Uh, It's a very small sample size. We're dealing with a different French team, too. Not as potent as it was in 2018. Mbappe is back, and he looks great. But France has been hit hard by recent injuries, and they've had to be more resourceful and rely on their experience and some luck. I mean, the 2-0 win over Morocco in the semifinals could have easily gone the other way if France's last line of defense and its goalkeeper didn't stop the repeated close-to-the-goal attacks by Morocco, but they did. Uh, The team did what it had to do, and that's how France has gotten through this tournament. Another challenge, though, France has been trying to limit a virus within the team. Hmm. They are deep and talented, but they can't lose many more players. So, advantage Argentina? Maybe. (laughs) Being a little wishy-washy, I am being very difficult. Argentina lost its first match of the tournament in an all-time upset by Saudi Arabia. It was a bad start, but Messi said that steeled his team, put them in must-win situations uh, in every match after that. They haven't been consistently dominant, but they come into the final having beaten Croatia 3-0 in the semis. That was an impressive win. That does create some nice momentum. I guess, Rob, I'm hedging a bit because while both teams are very good, their runs to the final have been bumpy at times. I kind of feel like the world has forgotten soccer as a team game because everything's about Messi versus Mbappe. Is that fair? Um, No. It's because there are lots of other really good players who will have an impact on what happens Sunday. To name a couple, France's do-everything forward Antoine Greitzman, uh, Argentina's Julian Alvarez, who scored twice against Croatia. But... We love our big stars, right? And Messi and Mbappe have earned their star status. 35-year-old Messi has been tortured for much of his stellar career by not winning a World Cup title for his country. The stage is perfectly set for him to finally do it. He's had a great, impactful World Cup here already. And a lot of people are cheering him on, not just in Argentina. Mbappe is only 23, but he would love to have a second title now, which would make him the second youngest to win two since Pele, the legend, did it 60 years ago. That's NPR's Tom Goldman at the World Cup in Qatar. Thanks, Tom. You're welcome. Time now for StoryCorps. Sandra Bears grew up in the late 1950s, and more than anything else in the world, she loved to sing. At 13, she started her own group with a few friends. Later at Roosevelt High School in Washington, D.C., they held an audition for a new member and met 16-year-old Martha Harbin. I was really nervous, and I was so bashful. We were all kind of shy because we were young. 
and your voice just blended right in with ours. We kind of looked at each other when you started singing. Mm-hmm, yep, yep, <laughs> that's the right one. Martha officially became one of the jewels. They made a name for themselves touring across the country. Martha and Sandra came to StoryCorps. Remember a night at the Apollo Theater that changed their lives. So we came off the stage and we were in our dressing room and somebody knocked on the door mm-hmm. and we said, uh, who is it? It's me, James Brown. Open the door. He was like, what? <laughs> Remember he came into the dressing room. The first thing he did was kind of look in the mirror. How y'all doing? You know, while he was messing with his hair. And he said, I'd like for you all to join my show. Yes, he did. My father, you know, he felt that I should have a nine to five like everyone else. He said, singing is not a job. I said, yeah, but dad, you know, this is what I want to do. We joined Mr. Brown in 1966. And after that, it was just go, 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 you know, being on the road two and three months at a time. You know, it's not easy because you want to stay out there and you want to do it. But coming up, I got married and had twins and I loved singing. But that's a wild combination. I just miss my kids. So I just up and left. I never really thought that I would be on the road as long as I did with him. I had three children and I missed out on a lot. Graduations and birthdays and not being home for Christmas. But when we wasn't working, I would come straight home to be with my kids. I remember coming to see you at the Howard Theater and you hit every note. I think I screamed out at anybody in the theater. I was so excited for you. (laughs) Oh, honey. You know, I can remember calling you sometimes when I needed to talk or had a problem or something. You would always call me like I was your mama. I mean, I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's the closeness that we had. But I loved and, it. And I it's still, still that way. Yeah. We're family and we are part of we each are. other. We are. That was Martha Harbin, now Martha High, and Sandra Bears for StoryCorps. You can hear more about them on the StoryCorps podcast at npr.org. Major support for StoryCorps comes from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. And from Subaru, whose Share the Love event runs through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and their retailers will have donated over $250 million to charity. Learn more at Subaru.com share. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, three years after a brutal police beating and choking of a black driver in Louisiana, four officers face criminal charges. It's 829. This coming Monday, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol will hold its final public hearing. It's expected to make announcements about criminal referrals to the Justice Department. Listen live on Monday afternoon at 1 on 90.9 WBUR and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Wall Street analysts say investors are growing increasingly worried about the U.S. economy falling into recession. The Dow lost 764 points yesterday, or more than 2 percent. The Nasdaq closed down more than 3 percent. The broad sell-off was sparked in part by yesterday's government report on retail sales in the U.S. in November, showing they declined. That came a day after the Federal Reserve announced its seventh interest rate hike of the year. Afterwards, Fed Chair Jerome Powell indicated the rate hikes will continue in 2023 in the Fed's ongoing effort to try to bring down inflation in the economy. Right now, Dow futures are down more than 300 points. Winter storm warnings are posted from northern Pennsylvania to Maine. Snow is falling across much of the northeastern U.S., The National Weather Service says Burlington, Vermont, will see another four to eight inches of snow by tonight. New York Governor Kathy Hochul says crews in her state were ready for this latest storm. We'll be ready for this. New York is ready, as we always are, but uh, we're ready. Bring it on. Uh, Mother Nature, just keep at it. I started my first week on the job with a hurricane and uh, closing out this year with with another winter storm, but uh, it's nothing we can't handle. In the Northern Plains, blizzard warnings remain in effect in much of the Dakotas and parts of Nebraska and Montana. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The utility Eversource will begin construction on an electrical substation in East Boston next month, and the project will come with a big new price tag. In a state filing this week, the company says the combination of inflation, rising costs, and supply chain issues now bring the cost to ratepayers to over $100 million. That's a 33% jump from earlier estimates. More now from WBUR's Miriam Wasser. Eversource says the substation is needed for electric reliability, but residents worry about its location in a flood zone near a popular playground and big tanks of jet fuel. After fighting the project for years, John Walkie of the environmental nonprofit Greenroots calls the news about construction and the new price tag disheartening. Here's one place where we're just trying to improve a little bit of our corner of the neighborhood and know between the city, the utility companies, the state, Everybody has lined up to say, no, you're not going to be able to do that. Walkie says he hopes incoming Governor Maura Healy, who has criticized the project in the past, will do something to stop it. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. A Natick police officer who pleaded guilty to sexually assaulting a colleague has resigned. The town's select board was scheduled to debate yesterday whether James Quilty could keep his job, but Natick police say Quilty resigned his post before the meeting began. He had been on paid leave since 2020. Natick kept details of the case secret for more than two years. WBUR is suing the town for documents related to the case. Congresswoman Lori Trahan is among those asking for answers about journalists suspended from Twitter. She says her team met with Twitter leaders yesterday, and they told her there would not be retaliations against people who criticize the platform. After Twitter seemingly did that, Trahan tweeted asking for answers from Elon Musk. He has not responded. It's 8.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season, on stage through December 31st. 
Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Bruins wasted a two-goal lead last night at the Garden. They lost to the Los Angeles Kings 3-2 in a shootout. The Bees will host the Columbus Blue Jackets tomorrow. After a nearly two-week road trip, the Celtics are back home tonight. They'll host the Orlando Magic. We'll see a rainy and windy day today here in the Boston area. The same storm could bring more than a foot of snow to the Berkshires. Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver warns drivers in the higher elevations of Worcester County to watch out for snow and slick roads. We are expecting that you're going to see a little bit of slippery conditions in those areas as well, even if you're not encountering snow directly falling in those spaces. One of the things that we have seen some reports of this morning as well is, is a number of spin-outs. It'll be in the low 40s today. Tonight, rain in upper 30s. The wet weather continues tomorrow with rain in the morning, clouds in the afternoon, and gusty winds all day. It'll be in the low 40s. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Five law enforcement officers in Louisiana are now facing criminal charges in the deadly arrest of black motorist Ronald Green. He died in police custody in 2019 after a high-speed chase with state troopers. Two years later, body cam video initially suppressed showed white officers brutally beating the 49-year-old black man. These are the first charges to come in a case that has brought increased scrutiny on Louisiana state troopers and how they treat black suspects. NPR's Debbie Elliott joins us now. Debbie, what are the charges? Well, the most serious is negligent homicide, and that's the charge against Master Trooper Corey York, along with 10 counts of malfeasance in office. Now, he is the one who is shown on this body cam video dragging Green by ankle shackles and then putting his foot on Green's back to force him belly down on the ground. Three other Louisiana state troopers and then a sheriff's deputy also facing charges of malfeasance and obstruction of justice. Now, this indictment, A, comes after a grand jury in Union Parish heard evidence for about a month now, including some testimony from a medical expert who classified Green's death a homicide. Now, that's contrary to the original coroner's report in this case that said he died from a drug-induced delirium that was complicated by a motor vehicle collision. And a lot of the details of what happened to Ronald Green were kind of just kept secret for a while, only Mm -hmm. emerging a while later. Remind us of those uh, details. So this was May in 2019. Excuse me. Green was arrested after a high-speed chase, and authorities initially told his family he had died in a car crash near Monroe. This is in northeast Louisiana. And the case didn't really get that much attention at first, and then his family filed a lawsuit against state troopers alleging excessive force. Now, the initial crash report said that Green had refused to pull over on an unspecified traffic violation, and that once it ended in this crash, he struggled with troopers. They took him into custody, 
and that he later became unresponsive and died on the way to the hospital. There was absolutely no mention of troopers using force. Then this long suppressed body cam footage was obtained by the Associated Press last year and it completely changed the narrative. It showed what happened at the end of that chase. Troopers rushed Green's car. They stunned him. They beat him. Again, they dragged him by his shackles. They left him face down and he was begging for mercy the whole time. It's really difficult to watch. Now, since that, there are so many questions about whether state police officials were involved in a cover-up and who knew what really happened and when, including the governor of Louisiana. Has uh, Ronald Green's uh, family said anything? You know, Green's mother, after the indictment came down, uh, her name is Mona Hardin. She said she was excited to have the indictments, but then she questioned, but the question is, are they really going to have to pay for this? The family has tried to keep pressure on authorities to get justice in this case. Um, In what she considers her son's killing at the hands of troopers, Hardin says they just want something to stick. Now, we should also note here, A, that after the indictment came down, um, this was late yesterday, the head of the Louisiana State Police, Colonel Lamar Davis, said the actions are inexcusable and have no place in professional public safety services. Okay. Now, these charges are from the state grand jury. Um, Mm -hmm. Other investigations are happening. Who else is looking into this? The Louisiana legislature and the U.S. Justice Department. The Justice Department is looking into whether there's a pattern or practice of discrimination in the way Louisiana troopers treat black suspects. And in the state investigation, lawmakers want testimony from Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards after reports he saw the police cam video early on but remained silent. His office says he's cooperating. NPR's Debbie Elliott. Uh, Debbie, thanks. You're welcome. Japan's government today announced plans to acquire weapons that can strike other nations. Japan has avoided doing that since the end of World War II. Its post-war constitution forbids the nation from waging war. This is a major shift for Japan, for the region, and for Japan's ally, the U.S., Here to discuss it with us is NPR's Anthony Kuhn, who's been in Japan reporting on this issue this week. He joins us now from Seoul. Hey, Anthony. Hey, Rob. So what does this new policy say? Well, the policy is laid out in three national security documents, which just came out. A key point in them is that Japan plans to have what it calls counter-strike capabilities, by which it means long-range missiles capable of hitting North Korea and parts of China. It plans to get them and deploy U.S.-made Tomahawk cruise missiles in about four years. It also includes roughly doubling Japan's defense budget to about 2% of GDP over five years and building up its defense industry and arms exports. The government is still debating how to pay for all this, whether it's by issuing bonds or hiking taxes. Wow, counter-strike capabilities. Why is Japan making this shift now? Well, the documents say that Japan is facing the toughest security environment since the end of World War II. It points in particular to China and North Korea's military buildups and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which it says is a blow to the international order. Hmm. Now, Japan insists that it's going to stick to a strictly defensive security posture, which it's long had. It's going to use the minimum force necessary and only when there are no other options available. What Japan's ruling party would like to do is to scrap restraints on the military by amending the constitution, but it doesn't have the popular support for that. Polls suggest it does have support for counter-strike capabilities, so that's what it's getting. Got it. So I'd imagine not everyone is happy about this. What are critics saying about this? 
Uh, critics say this goes well beyond self-defense, which Japan says its constitution does permit. They say that there just has not been a proper public discussion of this whole matter. Hmm. And they also say the military strategy that's behind this is risky because when Japan says counterattack, that could actually include hitting an enemy missile that they think is about to be launched at them before it's actually been launched. So uh -huh. it's a fine line between a counterattack and a preemptive strike, and they could just get it wrong. Well, is there any idea what this could mean for the U.S.-Japan alliance? Well, for a long time, the U.S. has been urging Japan to shoulder more of the responsibility for its own defense. So Washington is happy with this development. China is certainly not. Uh, but the U.S. also needs to consider that Japan is getting military capabilities independent of the U.S. in part as a sort of insurance policy right. in case Japan comes under attack and the U.S. fails to come to its aid. Now, finally, um, if these missiles are ever used, they're going to have to be done in with closer cooperation, military coordination with the U.S., which would include sharing intelligence and probably coordinating which targets to pick. That's NPR's Anthony Kuhn in Seoul. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you, Rob. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, WBUR's Anthony Brooks talks to New Hampshire political leaders about the possibility of losing the first-in-the-nation presidential primary. It isn't too much of a spoiler to say they're not happy. And your forecast, brace yourself for a soggy combination of wind and rain today into tomorrow. Rain and low 40s this morning, showers and upper 30s tonight. Saturday, low 40s, we start out with rain and wind, then it'll be cloudy in the low 40s. It's 44 degrees right now in Boston at 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event through January 2nd. Now in business news, resident assistants at Tufts University are forming a union. Yesterday, the students who help oversee the university's resident halls voted 99 to 3 to unionize. The RAs say they want compensation for their role, in addition to the housing fee waiver they already receive. Tufts says it is committed to reaching a deal with the group. Andover-based Enel North America will help McDonald's meet its renewable energy goals. The company signed a solar power agreement that will power the fast food giant's supply chain with clean energy. The companies are not saying what the deal is worth, but Enel will begin supplying power to McDonald's in the coming year. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com.
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The tradition of New Hampshire and Iowa holding the first in the nation presidential primary and caucuses could soon end. A proposal by the Democratic National Committee backed by President Biden would rearrange the schedule for 2024. South Carolina, the state that saved Biden's 2020 election campaign, would go first. But as WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, New Hampshire has no intention of giving up what is arguably its greatest claim to fame. It's true. Think about it. What is New Hampshire most famous for? Well, it's the Granite State, but it's hardly famous for its mighty stock of gray rock. No, the reason that presidential wannabes and legions of journalists and political observers make the pilgrimage to Portsmouth, Concord, Manchester, and scores of towns and villages every four years is New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation presidential primary. New Hampshire takes its first-in-the-nation primary very seriously. This is David Scanlon, New Hampshire's Secretary of State. It's part of our culture. We've been doing it for over 100 years. People in New Hampshire take great pride in it. Jimmy Carter took a long lead tonight in the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. He won the New Hampshire primary handily. The New Hampshire primary has helped propel long-shot candidates into the White House. From Jimmy Carter, who won in 1976. Thank you very much. I remember when we couldn't find a microphone. To Bill Clinton, who finished second in 1992. New Hampshire tonight has made Bill Clinton the comeback kid. And if exceeding expectations in New Hampshire can launch presidential careers, doing poorly can dash them, as it did in 1968. That's when President Lyndon Johnson almost lost to Eugene McCarthy, which prompted this stunning announcement from a sitting president. I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. But should one very small, overwhelmingly white state have such outsized influence in presidential politics? The Democratic National Committee is about to say it should not. The DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee has endorsed a new primary schedule. If approved by the full DNC, South Carolina would vote first. New Hampshire, along with Nevada, would go a week later, then Michigan. Antoine Seawright, a political analyst and advisor to the DNC, says putting South Carolina first makes sense for the future of the party. Sixty percent of the people who would cast their vote in a Democratic primary in South Carolina are African-American. That is very reflective of the most loyal and dedicated constituency in the Democratic Party. The DNC says New Hampshire must repeal its law that says its primary will always go first. It also wants New Hampshire to allow for early voting. The demands prompt outrage from those who guard New Hampshire's privileged position on the primary calendar. Here's what Governor Chris Sununu told WMUR. So now the National Democrat Party is trying to change our state law. It, it's, it, if it weren't so serious, it would be an absolute joke. New Hampshire's political establishment is united in its resistance to the DNC, from Sununu to legislative leaders to members of the state's congressional delegation. Democratic Senator Gene Shaheen summed up New Hampshire's position this way. We have a state law that says we're going to go first. So we're going to go first. (laughs) Critics in New Hampshire say the DNC plan is just a scheme by President Biden to improve a potential re-election bid. Neil Levesque, who heads the Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College, points out that Biden finished fifth in the 2020 New Hampshire primary. 
before he saved his campaign by winning in South Carolina. Levesque says little wonder that Biden wants South Carolina to go first. Candidates should not dictate when elections are because they'll certainly do it to their advantage. And that's what's happening in this case. Supporters of the New Hampshire primary say no state does a better job at vetting presidential candidates with months of small gatherings and town hall meetings. The primary also pumps hundreds of millions of dollars into the state economy. James Roosevelt, who sits on the DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee, agrees the New Hampshire primary is important. But he says it's time to give states with more diverse populations, like South Carolina, more influence. New Hampshire has done this and done it well for a century or more, but they have always abided by the party rules. This is the first time they're not doing that. Roosevelt says if New Hampshire defies the DNC and insists on going first, the DNC can punish it. That could include not recognizing its delegates, which Roosevelt says would radically diminish the importance of the New Hampshire primary. It will be a state-sponsored public opinion poll. This will all come to a head next February when the full DNC votes on the proposal, which could end New Hampshire's much-cherished first-in-the-nation primary. But whatever happens, New Hampshire says it will always be first. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Deepa Fernandez is here to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Deepa. Hi, Rupa. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. We have a lot on today's show, as always. We are going to go into a migrant shelter in Arizona. We've all heard about the many migrants who've been stuck on the other side of the border trying to claim asylum. Well, some of them have started coming over in great numbers and with Title 42 set to finally expire next week, the shelters in the border regions are bracing. So we'll go into one in Arizona. And we also have just amazing conversations about the tapes of Louis Armstrong, who in his own words really redefines what we know about him and his legacy. Plus, we are going to hear about a youth lawsuit in Montana, excuse me, about the environment. <laughs> That's here and now today. <clears throat> Thank you, Deepa. Thanks, Rupa. It's 8.52. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. The future was invented 75 years ago today. A little rig that could fit into a shot glass. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to clients' long-term goals. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. I'm David Brancaccio. First, the Senate has passed a bill banning federal employees from downloading or using TikTok on government devices. It's the latest in a series of moves in Washington to limit this app. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has this report. The Senate bill would apply to all federal employees, except for some who work in national security or law enforcement. Sponsors of the legislation say it's designed to keep China from accessing the personal information of Americans using TikTok. TikTok says it would never give any data to the Chinese government. The House would have to pass the bill and President Biden would have to sign it by the end of the year for it to become law. Some states have already banned the use of TikTok on state-owned devices. And earlier this week, Republican Senator 
Marco Rubio introduced legislation that would ban TikTok from operating in the U.S. A news release from Rubio's office says the legislation would prohibit transactions from any social media company under the influence of Russia or China. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. I have to say the stock market is continuing to skid this morning after the head of the U.S. Central Bank warned earlier this week he is not letting up on higher interest rates until inflation really comes down. After the Dow fell 764 points, two and a quarter percent yesterday, Dow and S&P futures this morning are down another 1.1 percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by the United States Postal Service, offering holiday postage stamps for purchase at more than 40,000 supermarkets, drugstores, office suppliers, and wholesale clubs. And by Unisys, where some see barriers, Unisys sees breakthroughs, a technology solutions partner across digital workplace, app modernization, cloud, and beyond. Unisys, keep breaking through. 75 years ago today, the future began with the invention of the transistor. A lab notebook indicates that researchers at Bell Telephone Laboratories first got the thing to work on this day in 1947. This week here, we've been looking at the ecosystems of transistor innovation from New Jersey to Texas to California. Today, the role of immigration, starting with an elusive desktop calculator. I've been hoping for a long time that somebody would find a 141PF sitting in their closet gathering dust and go, hey, you know, do you want this thing? Rick Benson, an IT guy in Oregon, owns a lot of vintage units as founder of the Old Calculator Web Museum. Anyone got one called the Bizacom 141? He'll pay for shipping. It's the 141PF, which is the special one. That became the very first consumer item to be produced that utilized a computer on a chip. They're very hard to find today. This calculator was marketed by a Japanese company, but its brain was devised in California in 1971. That brain is the first commercial microprocessor. It was developed at Intel by a guy from Rochester, New York, Ted Hoff, and a fellow from Vincenza, Italy, Federico Fajin, assisted by Masatoshi Shima of Japan. Embedded in that were 2,000 transistors that were innovations in themselves. They used a sandwich technique, something devised years earlier at, it keeps showing up in this project, Bell Labs in New Jersey. The MOSFET is really the technology that makes what we could say Moore's Law possible, the possibility of continual growth in the number of transistors we put on an integrated circuit. Ross Bassett is a professor of history at North Carolina State University. The development of electronics in the U.S. features many immigrants from Europe. Alexander Graham Bell, the phone's inventor, was from Scotland. Nikola Tesla's from what is now Croatia. And the two researchers who chose an unconventional path to improve the transistor were Mohammed John Atala, raised in Egypt, and Dewan Kong from Korea. Atala and Kong were from what we would now call the Global South, and they were drawn to the United States by American graduate education in engineering. And so that was sort of the magnet that brought them to the United States. Dr. Bassett was able to meet Dr. Atala late in the inventor's life. One of the things that was interesting about Atala is that he refused to limit himself to a discipline. He called himself a problem solver. He worked on the MOS transistor. Then he moved out to Silicon Valley and worked for a branch of Hewlett Packard. And then he finally started his own company, which was involved in cryptography. 
Another Atala invention, the ATM PIN code. To research the intersection of immigration and innovation, Jennifer Hunt, a professor of economics at Rutgers University, counts up patents. Immigrants patent at about twice the native-born rate. She says one reason is because more skilled immigrants come to the U.S. with the kind of experience that lends itself to invention, compared to, say, a law degree from overseas. Whereas physical sciences and, and engineering, at least in their pure form, completely portable. And research shows when skilled immigrants are part of the mix, patents by U.S. native-born researchers also rise. Everyone gets more motivated in some way. It seems likely that working in teams, for example, of native-born workers and immigrant workers tends to lead to a better outcome than if there had been no immigrants in the teams. As for that foreign pipeline of talent, the number of graduate students studying in the U.S. from Asia, including India, has now rebounded from its pandemic trough, 284,000 in the last academic year. But with tech stocks sagging, some skilled immigrant workers may have to leave for other countries as visas expire. Longer term, semiconductor work in the U.S. is set to boom with new federal funding fueled by national security and supply chain worries. It's $280 billion to bring back to the U.S. the production of microchips, which come slathered in transistors invented 75 years ago today. How does the bounty that comes with innovation get spread to more people? How can new ecosystems of innovation decrease inequality? Just some of the topics we hope to explore on this program in the new year. The Future Began 75 Years Ago was produced by Alex Schroeder with Erica Soderstrom and Jarrett Dang. Our editor was Meredith Garretson-Morby, the digital producer Redmond Carolipio. Our field engineer was Gary O'Keefe. If you missed any part of this project this week, do not miss the podcast special. It'll be atop the Marketplace Morning Report podcast feed starting this afternoon and through the weekend. I'm David Brancaccio with our Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR, and it's Friday. Try to keep that in mind. As I tell you, it's going to be a sloppy day with wind and rain that will continue into tomorrow morning. Low 40s today, upper 30s tonight, then back to the low 40s on Saturday. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales Investments, dedicated to helping ease the mental health crisis through the Fuss Family Mental Health Initiative, aimed at tackling the mental health challenges facing young people in under-resourced communities by providing support for systems of outreach, prevention and therapeutic programming, and training for valued clinicians. And Midwinter Revel's 52nd annual celebration, music, dance, theater, and carols through the 28th at Sanders Theater. Theater in Cambridge. Tickets at revels.org. I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.